0: Welcome to Question Period, I'm Evan Solomon. Today on the program, bailout? The lack of travel demand combined with domestic quarantines means that sadly, we can no longer
1: maintain our full Canadian network of service.
0: WestJet's stunning cancellation of flights to Atlantic Canada sparks a call for a massive airline bailout. Is that coming? And will the federal government bail out the provinces on long-term care homes or impose national standards? Minister Dominic LeBlanc joins us on those concerns and then the Trump tapes.
2: And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your, even your strenuous flus.
0: His 17 interviews with President Trump changed the course of that election campaign. Today, the legendary journalist Bob Woodward joins us for a Canadian television exclusive on his new book, Rage. Why does Woodward say Donald Trump is a danger? And then, deadly catch.
2: The risk if we don't get this right is that people will die. And I think everyone should be clear about what that means. Um, because violence begets violence.
0: A clash over fishing rights in Nova Scotia leads to violence. Why isn't the RCMP stepping in to protect the rights of Indigenous fishers? We'll hear from the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Perry Bellegarde, as well as from the Indigenous Services Minister, Mark Miller, on that and on allegations of racism in the healthcare system. Plus, the former CSIS director, Dick Fadden, responds to new threats to Canada from China and the conservative health critic Michelle Rumble garner weighs in on the rapid testing shortages and the weed controversy. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. So the airline bubble has burst, at least in Atlantic Canada. WestJet has cancelled all flights to four key Atlantic Canadian cities, reduced flights to others, laid off 100 people. Why? Well, one reason is the unanticipated consequence of the Atlantic bubble, where visitors from outside those provinces have to quarantine for two weeks. It's been a big health success, but an economic disaster for the airlines. Should the federal government follow the lead of other countries and bail out the airline industry, even as customers who bought tickets haven't gotten cash refunds? Talk about that and the call for national standards in long-term health care homes. We're joined by the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister, Dominic LeBlanc. Minister, hope you and the fam are doing well. Good to have you here. The Prime Minister spoke to uh, uh, ministers for the 21st time uh, on Thursday. A lot of the premiers, especially in Atlanta, Canada, want the airline industry bailed out. The National Airlines Council of Canada wants a, 17, a $7 billion bailout. Is support going to come?
3: So you're absolutely right. The the premiers, uh, Evan, discussed uh, on on the call last week uh, the concern about regional air service. The WestJet announcement is obviously difficult for the four Atlantic provinces, for Quebec as well. Um, I had a number of conversations with the president of WestJet. Um, There's no doubt that Canadians expect that when the economic recovery uh, is concluded that we're left with a competitive Uh, air transportation system across the country. It's essential for the economy of the country. Our geography requires it. Um, But Canadians also expect us uh, not to simply write blank checks or bail out large corporations without addressing, as you said, the issue of vouchers. As a Member of Parliament, I hear from a number of people how upset they were that thousands of dollars on a credit card turned into a voucher that they may or may not be able to use at a at an unknown time.
0: The German government bought 20% of Lufthansa. WestJet, of course, is now privatized. There used to be a public uh, company. Is your government open to taking uh, pieces of these companies the way the German government did with their airline?
3: So that, that's a good example, uh, Evan. In, in some jurisdictions, uh, European jurisdictions, that was one approach. I know my colleagues, Mark Garno and Christia Freeland, are looking at a whole series of options of what... Uh, government support might look like for the sector so we haven't made any decisions uh, in that level of detail yet but they're very much uh, discussing that uh, I know um, and the government is very much discussing that.
0: Seven months in, we're still having conversations. I feel like I'm sitting at an airport waiting for a delayed flight that never is going to come. <laughs> this is not funny. For for the economic consequences, this is a big, big deal. You're an Atlantic Canadian, Minister. You're in that sector, right? You're the situation that you said we can't find ourselves for Atlantic Canadians. They're in it now but okay so i'm intrigued but but to to
3: be fair there there are not a great number of traveling passengers in atlantic canada coming to atlantic canada for the reasons you said in your introduction because the provincial governments in the case of atlantic canada have put in these very severe and very effective public health measures so this is by no means one-dimensional and that's why the government needs to be prudent when we're talking about potentially these significant amounts of money
0: uh, let, let me talk about a call for national standards for long term care homes. Second wave. We knew this was coming. There were supposed to be measures to, to you know, the, the so called iron ring around uh, long term care. Hasn't happened. Long term care homes are again at the center of this second wave. So now, I appreciate this is a provincial responsibility, sir, but the the federal government has been involved to help them. The Army was called in. The Red Cross is now coming to a number of homes in Ontario, which, by the way, as you and I both know, that's a sign of what a failure this has all been. Um, What, in a concrete way, can the government do uh, to set up long-term care home standards? And and will that be tied to health transfers? In other words, money will go there if the provinces accept the standards.
3: So... The issue of of a discussion in terms of the Canada health transfer, uh, the the general transfers that take place to provinces and territories for health care is something the Prime Minister is committed to to doing or to having a discussion with the premiers uh, in the coming weeks. So that discussion will take place. The long-term care challenge uh, isn't necessarily part of that precise discussion. Uh, It might end up being part of a larger conversation. But what we've said Evan, is that Canadians were understandably extremely upset by some of the tragic circumstances we saw in different parts of the country, but no part of the country was immune from some difficult circumstances in long-term care homes. Um, We think Canadians expect their governments to work together uh, in something as important as caring for these vulnerable people. Um, So we've said to provinces and territories, and we did last week in a conversation the Prime Minister had, the 20th discussion with other First Ministers, that we wanted to start by, for example, sharing best practices from one jurisdiction to another. What can we learn in the very immediate term? Because, as you said, the second wave is upon us, and Canadians expect to not see some of the the tragic outcomes that we saw in the spring.
0: Let me just try to to boil it down. Isn't it possible for the federal government just to say, look, we've given you guys $19 billion for the safe restart. Here's what we'll do. There's another X billion billion dollars we'll give you right now, but it's got to go directly to long-term care homes, to training because you you can't get enough workers there, training, PPE. That money's got to go to long-term care. If you do that, we'll give it to you. If not, no. Why is that so difficult?
3: It's not not difficult, Evan, in the sense that uh, provinces have said to us, and on the discussion on the call last week, a number of provinces said they wanted to work deliberately with the Government of Canada in order to put into place additional measures that would protect these vulnerable people in these long-term care facilities. Um, So, as you correctly noted, the Red Cross, uh, under, uh, under federal leadership, the Canadian Red Cross, is currently in a number of these homes to assist and to bring urgent support uh, when needed. We're happy to continue to offer that urgent support that provinces asked for. It's not a long-term solution. The long-term yes. solution is to say, listen, we've learned some sad lessons from the tragedies of the spring. And what can we do immediately whether it's, as the prime minister noted this week, whether it's uh, increasing the infection control specialists that would be available to work in a in a particular facility or across a number of facilities to ensure quality control in terms of infection control. These are all things that the government of Canada is prepared to do with provinces.
0: I got to leave it there, Mr. I appreciate your time. As always, take good care, minister Dominic LeBlanc. Thanks.
3: Always play it down.
4: I still like
0: playing it down. Well, we've all heard that. The president of the United States openly admitting that he downplayed the severity of the coronavirus. That explosive recording of President Donald Trump was the first indication that Bob Woodward's new book, Rage, this one, was going to transform the U.S. election campaign, and it has, with Trump's admission becoming a key controversy in that election campaign, just one of many. Bob Woodward hardly needs an introduction, though. He became a household name after he and his reporting partner Carl Bernstein at the Washington Post broke the Watergate scandal back in the 1970s, which forced President Richard Nixon to resign. Woodward has since published 20 books about multiple presidents, Supreme Court judges, the CIA. Rage is his second book about Donald Trump. And to write it, he interviewed the president 17 times on the record. He recorded 16 of them with Donald Trump's consent. So after all of that, why does he conclude that Donald Trump is the wrong man for the job? Let's find out. Joining me now is the author of Rage, Bob Woodward. Mr. Woodward, great to have you back on the program. I got to start with the pandemic, obviously, which, as you write in the book, is the biggest challenge to face the Donald Trump presidency. Were you shocked when he told you on the record that he, quote, deliberately played down the severity of the threat of COVID-19?
1: Well, I was in the process of trying to figure out where and when he learned and got a detailed briefing. And uh, back in in May and in June, I finally established that that was at the end of January. So that was much more alarming. He received the detailed, uh, not only a a warning, but it, it was a, hey, a catastrophe is coming he he was told it was going to be like the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic uh, that killed 675,000 people in this country, and so he he failed to exercise his duty to protect the people.
0: Since that interview. Um the president has contracted COVID-19. He's now, as you well know, he's recovered. Have you seen a change in his attitude or his views or his approach to the pandemic?
1: Well, he's much more cavalier about it. I mean, he's publicly said, oh, getting it was a blessing from God. Imagine somebody saying it, it is a blessing to get a disease like the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, when 215,000 people in his country that he is supposed to lead have died of it, it is almost inconceivable. And his uh, indifference, uh, the cavalier attitude of, oh, don't, don't be obsessed by uh, the virus, don't let it get, down, get you down, I, and then him saying he feels great feels, hasn't felt better in 20 years, it's uh, really an understatement to say this is Orwellian. It's almost unbelievable. But outrageous things happen each day, and so you forget what happened five or seven days ago, let alone 10 months ago. But it's all of a piece, and it is a history of, Presidential ne- negligence on a scale which, as I've written about presidents for 50 years, have never seen. Uh, has
0: Donald Trump transformed, changed the president? You keep saying it's unprecedented, it's Orwellian. Has he changed the how Americans and maybe the rest of the world perceive the office of the presidency and the president of the United States?
1: Um, uh, yes, uh, yes, he has quite dramatically, and I'm not sure. The institutions in this country, the political system, uh, the, the business community, the the media world knows how to deal with him.
0: What's the profile? If you were to describe Donald Trump, he describes himself as a stable genius. You spoke to uh, you know his former Secretary of State Tillerson, his former Secretary of Defense General Mattis. You've spoken to hundreds of people about him. What? What, how would you describe a profile of Donald Trump, and how is he different from other presidents?
1: Uh, he is singularly focused. He acts on impulse, not on plans. That's why so many people left the administration uh, in uh, a, a state of genuine sorrow and disappointment about his leadership. Uh, as you know, you need a plan, and he just does not plan and so I, uh, we are now in a state three weeks away from the election. He has attacked the electoral process. He has literally said, we're not going to have, I cannot guarantee Trump, guarantee a peaceful transfer of power. He has attacked, I mean, think of, of this, the president of the United States has declared war On democracy. If somebody had told me this five or six years ago, he would have a president who's doing the things that he's done. I would say they're uh, taking some sort of drug to talk or think like that. We are in that world right now.
0: Bob Woodward, to hear you say that, I mean, you're you're very concerned about the transition of power, what's going to happen in these last three weeks, which is stunning to me. Um, In the meantime, you talk about that concentration of power. Uh, The president of China, Xi, has told his troops in the last week to prepare for war. There's a lot of heated rhetoric there over the Straits of Taiwan. Uh, Are you concerned? What is the geopolitical potential here? Uh, Mr. Woodward, are you concerned that things could get a little dangerous?
1: Well, things are dangerous. Um, he, uh, the president is commander-in-chief of the military, essentially can decide whether we go to war all by himself. There are lots of hot spots in the world. You mentioned Taiwan, the South China Sea, where there is a, a naval Uh, operations going on by the Chinese, uh, United States uh, Navy will test the right to transit, freedom of the seas, and something could spin out of control. I think one of the key qualities for a president is the capacity to listen and weigh and understand uh, what people are saying. You may not agree with everyone, but Trump just runs right over everyone. I think it's one of the most dangerous times in American history.
0: You talked a lot about systemic racism, Black Lives Matter, white privilege. Your country, many countries are very divided uh, by this. It's very divisive. There's been lots of accusations of him uh, talking, sort of trolling white supremacists. What's your view on that? Uh, Some people say he's the least racist person. Some people have accused him of essentially being a white supremacist. You've talked to him. What did you get
1: from that? I I, I try to avoid labels, but try to describe behavior. Black Lives Matter really uh, became one of the stories of the day. And I asked Trump, I said, I said, Mr. President, uh, you are someone who came from a world of white privilege like me. Is it not incumbent on us to understand the pain and anger that black people feel? it's right on the tape. We've played it. And Trump said, oh, wow, you sure drank the Kool-Aid, Bob. I don't feel that way at all. Mm -hmm. And you can hear the tone of his voice is, he's mocking me for saying, I think we have an obligation to understand the pain and anger of Black people.
0: You've interviewed every president. If you had to rank them, Where would Donald Trump rank in terms of all the factors that make it an effective, a good president? I know you end the book saying he's the wrong man for the job. Where would you rank Donald Trump,
1: sir? I don't, I mean, it's a a very good and important question for history and for political science. I don't think people uh, sit around and say, gee, is this worse than Nixon? Is this better than that? I think they want to say, they're saying, wait a minute, and I talked to Trump about this. How is this affecting my life? What's going on? Do I have somebody in the presidency who's looking out for me? And I asked Trump ex- extensively. I said, what's, what's in it for somebody out there in the population, a worker or anybody, male, female, anywhere in the country? What's in it for them if you were reelected. And he will spout some platitudes, but I think if you look at it objectively, and I try, I'm not a partisan, I'm not a Democrat, not a Republican, my conclusion is based on overwhelming evidence and my commitment to uh, not be silent in the face of this over well-mean evidence.
0: You've written, as you write, the first draft of history, Bob Woodward. Uh, it's a, always a pleasure to speak with you. The new book, Rage, fascinating study, 17 interviews with Donald Trump. Thanks for taking the time, Bob. I Thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you. All right, interesting stuff. And by the way, you can watch our entire conversation with Bob Woodward about his new book, Rage, and Donald Trump. Just go to our website, slash All right, coming up next a stark warning that a standoff could get deadly. Why is the RCMP not stepping in to a dangerous fishing dispute to stop it? The Indigenous Services Minister, Mark Miller, and the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Perry Bellegarde, join us on that next. Stay right here with Question Period.
5: The RCMP have been on site for every incident that has happened, and that's the, uh, the frustrating part on our, our behalf is, why are they getting away with these um, these hate crimes?
0: So that is Chief Mike Sack of the Subbanakadi Nation in Nova Scotia, who told me this week that the RCP are doing essentially nothing to stop the escalating violence and the racist threats against the Mi'kmaq lobster fishers in Nova Scotia. They are exercising their treaty rights, rights affirmed by the fame Marshall decision in the Supreme Court in 1999 that allows him to make a quote modest livelihood but non-indigenous commercial fishers are trying to stop them should the rcmp and the federal government be stepping up to do more let's find out joining me now is the indigenous services minister mark miller uh minister miller good to have you on the program hope you and the family are well you said this week that the situation could quickly become deadly i spoke to chief sack as you saw he said the rcmp are doing nothing to stop it why not?
2: Well, look, Evan, what, what can seem as, as, as an unacceptable assault on, on firm land can easily turn uh, deadly on the seas. And I think uh, given, given the state of tensions, uh, what we're seeing right now is, is a police in the last few days that has been uh, overwhelmed. Uh, I fully expect them to step up in the next few days to keep the peace. I think all Canadians expect that. Uh, And in terms of the federal government, uh, we're in constant communication with our provincial counterparts. The RCMP on the ground are a provincially delegated police. They have a job to do, and uh, my full expectation is that they will do so.
0: What does it tell you that there's been no arrests, no intervention by the RCMP? Chief Sack is literally telling me they're sitting there watching this happen when vans are burned out, there's all that. Like, Like, what message is that sending to Indigenous peoples across this country?
2: Well, clearly, yes, what we saw two day, a couple days ago is, is entirely unacceptable and people's lives and, 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 and personal integrity were at risk, including uh, their livelihood, and, and that's, that's frustrating to see. It's unacceptable to see in a country like Canada. Uh, and we expect the police to do their work and to keep the peace and I think we'll see that in the coming days. However, look, people people can draw their own conclusions as to what they see. Uh, there are a whole set of facts that we do need to sit down and, and see what went wrong and as a government and as someone who's act, asked not only to condemn but also to, to move forward and take steps to ensure this right. doesn't happen again. That's where we are at this point and that's uh, where we are seized of as a government.
0: But one, one thing a lot of people are saying is Governments have had 21 years to define one of the key terms in the Marshall decision, which is, what is a modest livelihood? That's what the commercial fishers are saying, hey, you guys are abusing it. The MIGMA are saying, no, we're not. Uh, I know four months after that decision, there was a sense of, of you know, the court said you have to have a, a conservation element, 21 years and there's been no definition. When is that going to happen?
2: Well, look, I think what we've seen with this government is its ability to be creative. You know, in a crisis such as the one we saw earlier in the year uh, with the and solidarity movements, the government sat down and was able to hammer out the beginnings of an agreement to, to move forward on a right that was recognized. Uh, even before uh, the Marshall decision in, in Delgamuk with respect to the and So this government has shown the ability to be creative. Uh, sadly, it, it has taken a crisis to focus the mind, and thats, that, that's I think that's unacceptable for most Indigenous people. Uh, but now the real task at hand is to sit down and, and to pound out what that means.
0: It takes a crisis to get the government to move. The what's so wet enough to protest, okay, the government's going to step in on that. Uh, here, there's livelihoods and people uh, threatening their lives. In, in the lobster issue, the government's now, okay, maybe we'll move in. Then the issue of systemic racism in the healthcare system, the tragic death of Joyce Eshaquan, an indigenous woman. She died in a Quebec hospital. Well, healthcare attendants were taunting her with racist insults. Uh, she had to record it live. It's the only reason we know about this, because she recorded it. Now suddenly the government I know there's an investigation, but you're hosting a meeting with healthcare ministers and first of all, what do you hope to accomplish outside of more jaw-jawing and and, and, and talking about it? What do you actually hope to accomplish about the issue of systemic racism in the healthcare system?
2: The incidents that happened to Joyce Echiquon, while they may have been a surprise to many Canadians, were not for Indigenous peoples. This is encapsulated in body works and more importantly in lived experience every day by Indigenous people. Acknowledging systemic racism in one thing, but moving ahead uh, as a country and using the acknowledging the limited levers the federal government has in matters of health but also acknowledging the powers we do have to convene uh, to use our federal spending power if needed uh, to ensure that indigenous peoples get first class care i think that is one of the early conclusions we can tease from the meeting, um, but there are many more and they will be informed by Indigenous peoples. I think we've, for far too long we've said we have all the solutions. Uh, we don't, uh, and it's important to acknowledge them that. But those solutions do exist in Indigenous right. communities and, and we want to respect those, but we have to listen to them before we do. And I think most importantly Canadians are demanding it.
0: Uh, I've got to leave it there, Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller. Uh, I always appreciate you joining us, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks, Evan. So is that all enough action? Do the federal government have to do more and faster? To find out, I want to now bring in the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Perry Belgar, National Chief. Uh, Great to see you. I hope you and the family are doing well. What do you make of the fact that the RCMP has basically done nothing throughout that violence in Nova Scotia? Chief Sack has said, do something, no arrests, nothing. What do you make of it?
5: Well, Evan, it's um, when you look at there's a big need for public safety on the ground over there and you look at the violence, you look at the threats, you look at the aggression, you know, you have a burning van that was vandalized and set on fire. There were no charges put in place. We witnessed the physical assault on Chief Michael Sack, no charges. You had two First Nations men barricaded themselves in a room that uh, in a building. There's no charges, you know, and so you need to start talking about public safety. And you have to get the RCMP out there with boots on the ground to make sure that there are, there's no harm, that there's no violence and aggression anymore. They've got to do their job. That's step number one. Once that's solidified, then you can go to step number two, which will be working with the Department of Fisheries and Ocean to start defining moderate livelihood. The Marshall decision is the Supreme Court of Canada decision. And it's been over 20 years now since they've not got to the table to wow. define what that looks like. So that, that's the other piece of work that's got to get but done. Two,
0: but let me go to point one. What, what message does it send to Indigenous people in Canada that there are no charges, that the RCMP are videotaping it, that you say, you know, we've got to get some boots on the ground day after day after day. This is escalating. What's the message? What does it tell you about the relationship between Indigenous peoples and the RCMP?
5: Well, again, it's, it's what I've said. It, I've said it this way many, many times, Evan, is that there is no justice system in Canada for First Nations people. There's a legal system. And it's, it's there's systemic racism in the justice system. There's systemic racism in the healthcare system. And so when you start talking about the legal system, it almost is, it feels like a
0: two-tiered system. And that's got to change. National Chief, there's a meeting on Friday of ministers and across the province on systemic racism in the healthcare system. You mentioned systemic racism earlier. Not a lot of listening, no concrete action so far. What needs to happen? Well, again,
5: um, we lift up uh, and acknowledge the family of Joyce Eshquan and that we want to make sure that her death is not in vain. And just like we have this Jordan River Anderson, you know, the Jordan's principle, there's a movement now to start talking about Joyce, the Joyce's principle, to make sure that there is no discrimination anymore in the healthcare systems right across Canada. So we can talk about what happened to Joyce in the healthcare system in Quebec. We can talk about Brian Sinclair, what happened in Winnipeg at that hospital. We can talk about what happened with the doctors and nurses with their guessing game, you know, in terms of the alcohol content of First Nations people in BC. So it's right across, no one can say there is no racism or discrimination in the healthcare system. It is. We've got to start focusing on what are we going to do about it. And that involves the provincial governments as well. That involves the colleges of physicians and surgeons. All the institutions that have a role to play have to be taken to, to task and be held accountable. You, this is systemic racism, systemic discrimination. You need systemic change. And that's what's got to happen at all levels.
0: A uh, National Chief, by the way, you mentioned the Jordan principle about the justice system. Now you talk about, interesting, the Joyce Principal from Joyce Essequan and the issue of uh, systemic racism in the healthcare system. Fascinating to hear from you, sir. Important issues. Uh, Great to have you on the program, sir. I appreciate it.
5: Thanks for the opportunity again, Evan. All
0: right. That's the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Perry Bellegarde. Coming up, are there enough rapid testing kits in Canada seven months into the pandemic? And the week controversy is back. Is it a cover up, as the opposition allege, or just? more partisan politics. The Scrum is next, and our special guest, conservative health critic, Michelle Rempel-Garner. Stay right here with Question Period.
4: We know uh, that rapid testing is a key part of the path forward, but it is not in and of itself a panacea. It is going to be important that it be deployed properly to maximize the impact
0: Seven months into the pandemic, in the middle of a dangerous second wave, new lockdown measures across the country, and Canada still has not widely distributed rapid testing kits, even though the federal government has bought almost eight million Abbott rapid diagnostics. It'll be months before they're widely available. Why has that taken so long? And our test results in so many regions across the country, why are they taking so long? Weeks in some cases. I know a family that has waited 13 days in Ontario. Talk about that and the return of the we controversy. What else do the opposition really need to know? The Scrum is here. Joyce Napier is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for CTV News. Tonda McCharles is a senior reporter for the Toronto Star. And our special guest for this round is conservative health critic Michelle Rempel-Garner. Great to have all of you on the program. Michelle Rempel-Garner, I'll start with you. You've been really critical of the lack of rapid tests, the delays, in the results. There are multiple factors, to be fair. One, it's provincial responsibility. Two, there's a lack of labs, agents, swabs. The federal government did transfer $19 billion to the provinces to help this stuff. So what else, in your view, should they and can they do?
6: Well, in this instance, it actually is federal jurisdiction because we have to be clear about what we're talking about. One are these sort of standard tests that everybody's been getting, and the other are these rapid tests, right, which are easier to get. You can get your results in 15 minutes. And it wasn't until we started putting pressure on them in the last month after the uh, parliament resumed that we started to see the government move and what that means is that canada's at the back of the line to actually receive those rapid tests and rapid tests keep things open so you know the the delays that we're seeing um, with the standard pcr tests that are happening right now they're unconscionable tests keep things open but we need those rapid tests so that we have that tool that other countries around the world are using to, you know, do everything from contact tracing, to keep daycares open, and to look at ways to even keep the airlines afloat. So that's a big thing that the federal government needs to explain, and that's what we're holding them to account on. Tonda, dig into that a little bit, because, you know, I've asked the procurement minister and, the, you know, the
0: ministers, they say, look, we, we are, we're buying tests, there's been some trust issues, Health Canada's got to give these the green light. But have they fallen behind the curve? Because the reality is people are waiting way too long.
7: Look, I I don't know the answer to that, frankly. Um, Absolutely, there is a crucial need for these rapid tests, as, as Michelle has said in all kinds of places. Right now the federal government is going to put its priority on rural and remote northern regions for the first batch that's supposed to arrive. So they will be getting them because it takes so long to ship out those other kinds of test samples to a lab. So If it's necessary up up there, it's also necessary in the south for all kinds of workplaces. It's legitimate to say that the federal government and the provinces have really drop the ball on the second wave, being ready for the second wave, not just for rapid approval by Health Canada of these tests in the first place, or the availability of them now, but also on contact tracing. I think contact tracing is a huge piece of this puzzle. If we don't get the tests and the test results early, people aren't being tracked down. And, show, and so, sure, their circles are growing, 20, yeah. 30, and then it's, it's out of control. It's unmanageable.
0: Yeah, Joyce, uh, where are you on that? In terms of uh, not just who's accountable here, uh, I'm interested in that, but is it too late to fix it? Or have they just, as Michelle Rempel-Garner has just said,
8: they've just been too late? I don't know if it's too late to fix it, Uh, but I do know this, the government was prorogued for five weeks. We're going to prepare for uh, the pandemic. We know that a second wave is coming. Um, We are getting into a a, a long, cold and dark winter. And I think that there is going to be COVID fatigue because we think about all these things that the government promised it would do and has not done, but now there will be some mental health issues. I know that there is a fatigue. You talk to people around you, and you really do feel a a deep discouragement from people who say, not only will I not be able to go outside as much as I did before, they're going to lock, I'm going to get locked down by this thing again, and the government is not, um, you know, uh, respecting its end of the bargain. Uh, Michelle Rempelgar, you've argued
0: that rapid testing could alleviate needs for things like 14-day quarantines, the Atlantic bubble, which, by the way, had played a role in the airlines, uh, WestJet decision not to fly there. the The question is, and the government, federal government, says we'll get sort of these 8 million tests by rapid tests by December. Are these tests reliable enough?
6: What could change if Canada had had more of those earlier? Rapid testing is key, right? I, I just read a, an ar- article from Harvard Medical School this morning that was talking about the fact that if you if people have access to frequent rapid tests, you know, you have a better odd of finding out if, if you've got coronavirus or not than if you're not getting tested at all or if you're waiting for 14 days for your results. So that's a big piece of it. Um, and, and the reality is that there's best practice now. We're not in March. We're in you know, October. There are countries around the world that are deploying these methods. Why hasn't the federal government at least done feasibility analysis on this? It's, it's actually more tests means more results which means more of a chance that you can flag whether or not somebody has it in a quick period of time. And to, again, to the point that was just made, contact trace. We don't know when a vaccine is coming, so contact tracing is everything. It's the key to keeping things open. By the way, I should remind our viewers, we did invite the health minister on, as we do
0: almost every week, to talk about this. She was not available this week. Uh, Tanya, let me just uh, steer back to you. The, uh, and can we just shift to the uh, WE controversy, uh, which is back, obviously, the opposition parties want to set up an anti-corruption committee or a super committee in the case of the NDP. The Liberals prorogue Parliament to stop the WE committees from investigating this. Now they're filibustering, they don't really want them back. Uh, The opposition says they want documents. Can you just try to separate, what's the, I mean there's a lot of politics here, I appreciate that, but there's also a lot of principle here. What do Canadians need to know now, Tonda?
7: I think the thing for Canadians to understand about it, the reason it's still on the opposition's mind is because it was a huge program that was set up as part of the rollout of the multi-billion dollar response to COVID. It it would have gone up to, at one point, it was contemplated to go up to nearly a billion dollars. And yet it was seemingly um, about to go out the door in a way that really was unchallenged, not contracted out to uh, a bidding process. And so those are legitimate questions to ask about what happened there. Why is it that that was going to be a sole source? contract to a group that apparently had ties uh, and, you know, was paying members of the Trudeau family for their work. So, so I think there was still are legitimate questions in the opposition's mind. Um, at the end of the day, this can't be filibustered forever. I think that, you know, they'll get another crack at it.
0: Uh, Michelle Rappel-Garner, uh, j- just quickly, a lot of the opposition
6: say there's redacted documents. 5,000 pages were given. A lot of it was blacked out. Yeah. Is that is that the key issue? Part of what's happening right now with these committees is getting access to those documents, and I think that that's fully reasonable. It's frustrating for me as a legislator to see the government just just really remove the ability of Parliament to function, because a, a strong opposition is important when we're looking at the efficacy of programs. You know, we just talked about rapid testing. But also, when the government is spending so much money, it's reasonable for the Canadian public to want to know, you know, is, uh, is, is what happened, is what's being spent the right decision? What happened? Was there conflicts of interest? That's our job. And, uh, you know, for the Prime Minister to try and shut things down, and it's weird, he is trying, he's he's assuming he's got a majority, and uh, I do think in these cases these motions will pass, but why are we wasting so much time, especially after Parliament was prorogued for so long? So, it's going to be a heavy week ahead uh, with the opposition, but I'm confident that we're... Um, we're going to be able to get some some action on this in spite of the Liberals' recalcitrance. All
0: right, guys, i, I got to leave it there. Uh, Michelle Garner, great to have you on the program. I know Tana and Joyce are going to stay with us because coming up, a Thanks new threat me. to Canada from China. Does Canada have to take a tougher stance against that country? The former head of Canada's spy agency, CSIS, Dick Fadden, will join us next on The Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period.
4: Regrettably. The current China-Canada relations are in serious difficulties due to the Meng Wanzhou incident. This incident is a brief political incident plotted by the, United, by the United States, and the purpose is to bring down Huawei and other high-tech Chinese enterprises.
0: New threats from China to Canada do not offer asylum to people in Hong Kong who are dissidents against that Chinese crackdown? Or what? Will the over 300,000 Canadians there be in jeopardy? Will they be arrested like Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig who have spent close to 700 days in prison under brutal conditions? This tough talk came from China's ambassador to Canada and it was a response to the Prime Minister describing China's use of what he is calling coercive diplomacy. Is it time for Canada to take a tougher stance against China and what would that actually mean let's bring back the scrum to talk about that george napier is back so is tonda mccharles our special guest for this round is the former uh, CSIS director and the former national security advisor to two prime ministers harper and trudeau dick fadden Uh, great to have you join the scrum dick dick what did you make of the chinese ambassadors well not so veiled threats to canada on the asylum issue and other issues
4: well the only bit of good news i could find in that is that we still have diplomatic relations but aside from that it was pretty bleak I think what he said was unacceptable. It was a threat. Uh, I don't think China is going to start you know, attacking the 300,000 Canadians in, uh, in Hong Kong, but they've illustrated not only with respect to China, but with respect to any number of other countries when they're annoyed, they can do a whole variety of things with citizens, with trade, with, ec- with the economy. Uh, I think the really sad part of this is is that I don't think either the ambassador or Beijing understands that this kind of language is against their own interest because all they're succeeding in doing is getting our backs up against China. I think the PM and Mr. Minister Champagne are right to say this is unacceptable. Uh, to ignore it would be something that we should not do.
0: Yeah, they've said it's unacceptable, Tonda, but what in concrete terms Can Canada do? For years they've been talking about banning Huawei from joining Canada's 5G network as our allies have done. What consequences could there be in concrete terms?
7: Well, look. There's a number of things that people in the opposition, democracy activists in Canada, and people who are among the Chinese diaspora in Canada are asking the Canadian government to do uh, beyond banning Huawei. Um, is to reset the, the the whole approach towards China. To set, for example, a higher bar for investment with state-owned enterprises. Um, for example, to act uh, when. Protesters here are met with counter-protesters that they believe largely are people sponsored by the embassy fomenting, you know, trouble for them um, to crack down on those people. They're also talking about actually this is something that's been in the works and I don't know why the government hasn't rolled it out yet, but creating pathways for residency and citizenship for those democracy activists in Hong Kong who are looking for a place to go to flee what they now see as a very oppressive regime.
0: Dick Fadden, uh you had long warned about threats to Canada domestically, espionage threats when you were the CSIS director and the National Security Advisor. Uh, do you see this, this escalating rhetoric as posing an increased danger to Canada and Canada's got to act in a little more prudent way?
4: I think it is, and I think we're beginning to do that. But I've argued, as have others, that over the course of the last many years, the government of Canada has been very, very much too soft on China. I understand there are economic and trade advantages and whatnot, but what China is trying to do, to put not too fine a point on it, is intimidate us. Mm -hmm. And if we allow the intimidation to be uh, acted upon, then we're only going to be intimidated more and more. I think we have to remember that Canada, from China's perspective, is not a great power. They think that they can get us to do their will as much as as they try. Uh, I think we have to not only push back, and push back hard verbally, I mean we can send their ambassador home, we can recall our ambassador, that's a traditional way of signifying unhappiness. But more than anything, we have to get together with a bunch of other like-minded countries who've also been subjected to Chinese intimidation and start drawing a line somewhere that this is not acceptable. I think we can survive without China being our best buddy, we just need to re-establish a new relationship that suggests to them, yes we want to have relations, yes we want to talk, but we don't want to be pushed around.
0: Yeah, and and Tonda, you listen to Dick Fadden talk about that. All our allies, for example, have banned Huawei from 5G. Canada still waiting on that. But you do wonder, the big fear is, would this put the two Michaels in further danger? That's got to be weighing heavily on the Prime Minister's mind.
7: That's got to be weighing heavily on the entire Cabinet's mind, no question. Um, However, just to Dick's point about working with allies, look, I think actually Canada has been marshalling Allies to come out and criticize China and their their uh, their detention of the two Michaels and th- those statements have been having an impact and I would say even further uh, that China is reacting to what it saw and we all saw in an international poll done by the Pew Research Center that showed 14 countries have in Western democracies mostly but 14 countries the populations show a massive. Uh, rise in distrust and negative opinion towards China. Yeah,
0: but Joyce, what are you waiting for to see?
8: Well, you know, it's interesting because middle powers like Canada, Australia, Japan, I mean, they've been bullied as well. Um, And, you know, the last meeting that Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister had, uh, by chance in Rome, with his Chinese counterpart, was actually organized by the Italian Foreign Affairs Minister. Um, and the European Union has spoken in favor of Canada and has brought up the case of the two, Cane- of the two Michaels, as we have, you know, are calling them now. So the, the allies are kind of helping, but they are as, I don't want to say helpless as we are, and I don't want to say hapless either, but somewhere between helpless and hapless. Guys, i got to leave it there. Uh, it is a file that is getting hotter, uh,
0: obviously, as again, we keep in mind, approaching 700 days for the two Michaels in prison. Uh, Dick Fadden, Tana McCharles, Joyce Napier. Great to have the three of you on the program. That does it for Question Period this week. Thanks so much to all of you for watching. I'll see you tomorrow night at 5 p.m. Eastern time on Power Play on CTV News Channel. And we will be back here in seven short days. Take care.